Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Sojourn. As Theodore said, we're grateful to be able to gather together this morning. My name is Justin, one of the pastors here uh, at Sojourn. And if this is your first time, we're grateful that you came this morning to worship with us. Uh, Whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or maybe you're here this morning just kind of checking out church and who God is and who Jesus is, uh, no matter where you find yourself on that journey, we're grateful that you're here this morning to be with us. And we hope that we could get to know you. And this could be a church, a community that you could find yourself being a part of. So we'd love for you to get connected here. And we'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end of our service today. As Theodore also said, happy Father's Day to the dads that are in the room. Uh, Grateful for you men. And uh, we'll be praying for you later in the service this morning. Uh, If you need a Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, uh, Matt's going to bring a Bible around to you. Just keep your hand up until he finds you this morning. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us uh, out of the book of Hebrews. Uh, so that we can all be reading it together. And if you don't actually own a copy of the scriptures, please feel free to take that home with you. It's our gift to you. We want you to have God's word, not just on Sunday mornings, but all throughout the week as well. Also, I just want to remind you that we have little sheets of paper in your bulletins every week, just so you can take sermon notes, just a way for you to be engaged in listening to the sermon, uh, to be able to process that, uh, not just today, but throughout the week. And as you engage with community, and whether it's community group or over lunch this afternoon or whatever it happens to be, that you can refer back to things that maybe stuck out to you and helped you and encouraged you and challenged you uh, as we're walking through God's word today. So as we begin, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Father God, you are good and you are faithful. And we pray that you would help us to believe those things to be true. That even as I say them with my mouth, that maybe there's those here this morning that are not sure that you're good, not sure that you're faithful, not sure that you are able. We pray, Lord, this morning as we go to your word, as we open it up, as we sit under it, that you would allow it to wash our minds, our hearts, our soul, that you would cleanse us, that you would draw us into your presence. Help us to come and see all that you've done. And all that you are doing in our world and in our lives even now. We pray, Father, that you would encourage us today. We ask, Father, that you would bless us today. That you would do a work in our lives. That you would break down walls that might be up. Holy Spirit, we pray that you break down strongholds in people's lives this morning. And that you would work in our hearts. That you would get into the nooks and crannies of our lives and help us to come freely before you. Help us to see your glory today in the face of Jesus. May your word go out. May it not return void. And may you get all glory and praise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Arguably, one of the most influential bands of all time has to be the Beatles. Now, I know lots of people have lots of different feelings about the Beatles. Some of you love the Beatles, some of you think the Beatles are overrated, and some of you are kind of in the middle in between. But you can't say, no matter what you think, that they haven't had massive influence on generations of people, starting in the 1960s all the way up to today, that they've had massive influence. The Beatles rose to international fame quickly really starting in the mid-1960s. And in 1965, they came out with an album, a song, and a movie called Help. If you know this song, it's an interesting song. I'll read it, not going to sing it, but I'll read you some of the lyrics this morning. Maybe it'll get stuck in your head. It goes like this, Help, I need somebody. 
help. Not just anybody. Help. You know I need someone. Help. The verse says, when I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now these days are gone, and I'm not so self-assured. Now I've changed my mind. I've opened up the doors. Help me if you can. I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate you being round. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? In the documentary, The Beatles Anthology, John Lennon, the writer and singer of this song, said that he wrote this song partly to express the stress that he was experiencing with the quick rise to fame that the Beatles had had. That as a young man, he didn't know how to handle all of these different things that were happening in his life. And later, in a later interview, Lennon said that he was subconsciously actually crying out for help as he wrote this song. And as catchy as this song is, I think it reflects some common things that a lot of us, the common themes that a lot of us have either dealt with or are currently dealing with or currently struggling with, even feeling right now. Help. Somebody. Help. You know, our culture, especially when we're younger, prides itself on not needing any help. We don't want to admit weakness. Our, cur- our culture encourages us not to admit weakness, that weakness is, is not something good to acknowledge in our own lives. We're self-made people. We're self-actualized people. We get great self-confidence and assurance, believing that we know best, and because of that, that our life is going to go well for us. But the longer we live, we come to realize that that isn't necessarily the case. And man, when we recognize that, when we realize that, it's actually a gift to us. Because the reality is, for you and for me, we are never meant, we were never meant to be independent, self-sufficient people. So we have that reality, but then on top of that, we have sin. And sin has messed all that up. It's jacked all that up. And sin, if we want to kind of boil it down, sin is the assertion that we are fine on our own to go our own way, to make our own way, to be independent of the king of all creation. Sin says that we don't actually need God, but instead we can actually be God, be like him in every way. And that's not an inconsequential decision. It has eternal ramifications. Sin has broken our world and our lives. And when you and I come to that realization, it can leave us in those moments of brokenness to really not have a whole lot of hope because we recognize there isn't a way for you and I to fix ourselves, to fix our world, to fix the problem. We need help. All of us. You know what? That's okay. It's okay to need help. And today, we're going to continue in our sermon series in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at just three verses and see that we not only have someone to help us, but that it isn't just anybody. It's God himself. God himself in the very real person of Jesus Christ. And so my hope today is simple. For every single person in this room is that God would draw you in so very close to himself. That God would draw you close to his heart, close to his presence, and he would give you great confidence to come to him with your whole life. So with that, let's jump into our text this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4. Last week, Eric preached, thankful brother for you preaching, finishing out chapter 3 and most of chapter 4. And so today we're going to look at the last three verses in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. 
This is what the author of Hebrews has to say to us this morning, what God has to say through his word to you this morning. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Over these last two weeks, we've seen some pretty pretty strong, some pretty critical calls on our lives to continue to believe in Jesus. That when the siren calls of the world call us to walk away from him, to find ourselves intoxicated with less glorious things, that the author of Hebrews is exhorting his original audience who were tempted to do this, to go back to their old life, following the law. When you're tempted to walk away from Jesus, he's exhorting you and encouraging you to continue to believe on Jesus, to continue to hold fast to your confession. And all of this leads to our text today. Just three short verses, but full of some rich truth. And so we're going to break these verses down into three points. A great high priest, a sympathetic sufferer, and confidently come. A great high priest, a sympathetic sufferer, confidently come. So let's jump into our first point, a great high priest. We see this in verse 14. So far in the book of Hebrews, the author has called Jesus a high priest twice, and here is his third time mentioning this, calling Jesus a high priest. And it's really, at this point, the beginning of him launching into a a long explanation of why that matters. And so the next few chapters of the book of Hebrews, he's going to unpack that a whole lot more of why it matters for you and for me here and now that Jesus is a high priest how he's a better high priest in every possible way. And so we're going to be looking at that over the next few weeks, over the next few chapters to see why that matters. But what I want to do today, because he mentions it here, is dive in a little bit and help us to understand it a little bit more. Because for some of us, I'm guessing that when we hear that Jesus is called a high priest, that it might seem a little bit weird to us. Depending on your religious background, depending on your, how you were brought up, maybe when you hear the word priest, what you think is a Catholic priest. So, so what's he talking about here? Well, again, we're going to unpack this a bit more over the next week, but just to give us some background here. The high priest in Israel was set up by God to be someone who would represent the people of God before God. He would go on their behalf before the presence of God as a representative for them. Because the reality is that sin separates all people from God. God being holy and perfect righteous altogether, is unable to be in a relationship with unholy, unperfect, unrighteous people. But God didn't leave us there. He set up this sacrificial system that a high priest could offer sacrifice for sin and go before the Lord on our behalf to make atonement for our sin so that we could come into the presence of God, that we could be known by him and know him. And so once a year, the appointed high priest would go into a place in the temple of God called the Holy of Holies. And the temple of God at that time was the place that the people of God came to worship him. 
And once a year, there was this place, this Holy of Holies, that had this giant curtain in front of it to, to symbolize the separation between sinful man and holy God. And only one time a year, one time a year, was the high priest able to enter through that curtain to pass through it, to go before what was called the mercy seat, to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people of God. But then he would leave. Then he'd walk out of that curtain. It was a brief visit into the presence of God on behalf of the people. We see this in chapter 5, verse 1. If you have your Bible, look there. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts, and sacrifices for sin. But what I want us to see, even here and now in 2017, is a key truth. Regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your spiritual background, all of us need a representative. All of us need a representative to go before God on our behalf. But for the people of Israel, this day of atonement, this sacrifice that happened there wasn't lasting. The sacrifice had to be made year after year. And on top of that, the high priest who made the sacrifice actually had to make a sacrifice for his own sin first before he could go and represent the people of God before God. We see this in chapter 5, verses 2 through 3. He, meaning this high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So he has to offer this sacrifice as well. So with that in mind, notice then what the author says. What he says here, he says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, He's saying, look, Jesus fulfills the role as our high priest because Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. Jesus came to fulfill the role that the high priest of Israel was always meant to point to. That we needed a better mediator and a better sacrifice. And Jesus is that better mediator. He is the mediator who takes away your sin, and not just yours only, but the sin of the world. People from every tribe, every language, every nation chosen before the foundation of the world to be adopted into the family of God and called children of God. Sojourn, we need help, and we have it in Jesus. But it isn't just help from anybody. It is Jesus who is the very Son of God, sent by the Father for this purpose to take on flesh and bear the crushing weight of all of your sin and all of your shame so that he might bring you all the way home. But let's not miss something critical here. Every year, the high priest would pass through this veil, pass through this curtain into the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain into the presence of God before this mercy seat. And then, like I said, he would leave and the curtain would remain closed. And the next year he would do the same thing. But what does the author say about Jesus? He has passed through the heavens. He he isn't floating on a cloud somewhere waiting for some future day of something. He has passed through the heavens and he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high because he has declared for you and for me, it is finished. It is finished. See, for the original audience who was tempted to go back to this sacrificial system, to go back to following the law, to wander away from Jesus, the author is saying, 
Look, okay, the high priest, he held a significant role in your life. He was the one who was sent to go before God on your behalf, so this is a good thing. But listen, Jesus is the answer that you've been looking for. Jesus doesn't go behind a curtain. He goes to the very presence of God the Father on your behalf. He is your help. He is the one that everything else has been pointing to. So then, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your belief. Hold fast to your faith, to your hope in Jesus. You and I don't have dealings with high priests today. But just like Israel then, we still need a mediator. Someone to represent us before holy God and to repair the breach that exists between God and us because of sin. So Sojourn, even now, the answer is Jesus. And the author has been calling us to persevere in faith, to reach the rest of God. And we talked about this a bit last week, but you and I can persevere in faith because Christ has gone before us. He is both the reason and the resource for us to be able to do this. So this is never about your ability to get to God. This is never about your ability to get to God. This is about who Jesus is, about what he's done to accomplish that for you. It's a glorious truth that we have a great high priest, but that's not all that he is, which leads to our second point. He's a great high priest, but he's also a sympathetic sufferer. You see this in verse 15. Have you ever had an experience when you're walking through something difficult in your life, a difficult circumstance, a difficult situation, and you are trying to explain to someone the difficulty? You're trying to explain to them the heartache. You're trying to explain to them the struggle. And maybe what the response you get from them is something along the lines of, oh, that must be really hard. And it might feel somewhat encouraging, somewhat comforting, but you know that that person doesn't fully understand what it is that you're going through. Maybe sometimes it even feels a little bit patronizing. My family, we've got three kids, and two of our kids have been in the NICU. They were born early, five weeks early. And for us, this is one of those moments where it was one of the hardest things in our life, especially with our daughter Emery, because she was in there for uh, just shy of a month. And when we tried to relate that to people, it was difficult because people understood to a level the difficulty, the struggle, but not fully had experienced that. And so when the author says that Jesus sympathizes with us in our weakness, it can be difficult to believe Jesus actually knows what it's like to struggle. That that it's actually difficult for us to believe that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted what it's like to walk through the difficulties of a broken world and suffer. We can think, but he's the Son of God. Was he really tempted to sin? Was it really hard for him like it is for me? And sometimes, if we're honest, I think the picture we can have of meek and mild Jesus is that he's kind of a a goody two-shoes. That he would blush if he heard a curse word. Or, or that he would freak out if he smelled alcohol or cigarette smoke and not want anything to do with any of that kind of stuff. So does he really know what it's like to live life in a difficult world? To be tempted to sin? But listen, Jesus is not distant. And Jesus is not uninvolved. He knows what it is like to be human. 
See, when we were in the NICU and struggling with different things, one of the most helpful things for us was to talk with people who had had the same experience. To be able to relate to them and be encouraged by people who had also had kids in the NICU. We had some friends just the, down the street from us that they'd had two kids in the NICU at the same time, twins born early, and Amy was able to reach out to this wife and be encouraged by her in the midst of this trial that we were walking through. They understood the struggle. And see, that's what we need to understand the word sympathize means here. The word sympathize here means literally to suffer along with. To suffer along with. Sympathy is not something that's phoned in. It's not just the, oh, I hope that that gets better for you. That might be hard for you. It's a literally suffering along with. And that's what Jesus does for you. Jesus took on humanity and all of its mess. He walked amidst the brokenness of this world. Jesus had to eat. Jesus had to sleep. He had to deal with difficult people and difficult situations. Jesus hung out with sinners. He was accused by people left and right because of the company he kept. He saw death and the ravages of disease. Jesus stepped in animal feces and mud and dirt, walking in the streets and the cities and towns that he journeyed through. And Jesus was tempted. So you can understand, I think sometimes we get this wrong, temptation in and of itself isn't sin. There's an opportunity put before you to say, if I'm going to walk in this, then I will sin. And so Jesus was tempted. He, things were put in front of him to cause him to consider obedience or sin. See, tempted, Jesus was tempted not in just that one episode in his life in the desert with the enemy, with Satan, but in all of his life. Because he was fully human and he experienced the fullness of humanity. He might have been tempted to lie to save his life when questioned by Pilate. He might have been tempted to covet when he was in the opulent houses of people like Zacchaeus. He might have been tempted to dishonor his parents because they were strict or because he knew more than they did. He might have been tempted to take revenge when he was falsely accused. He might have been tempted to be harsh when his disciples just quite didn't quite get it. He might have been tempted to lust when Mary wiped his feet with her hair. He might have been tempted to murmur and complain and grumble when his friend John the Baptist was killed. He might have been tempted to gloat over his accusers, have pride when they couldn't answer his questions. And then in his greatest hour of need, when he was before all these false charges and false counsels, all of his friends abandoned him. They all walked away from him. They all turned their back on him and left him alone. And he might have been tempted in that moment to have self-pity or to curse them for their disloyalty. Friends, Jesus was not a robot. He is a real person with thoughts and feelings and emotions, with a heart that beats, with lungs that breathe air, and a brain that thinks. And so he knows what it is like in a very real and personal way to live in a very real and broken world. One scholar says, our high priest is highly experienced in the trials of human life. What this means is that he can sympathize with you in your allurements to sin because he too was actually tempted. He can sympathize with you in your pain, in your suffering, because he too experienced pain and suffering and even death. 
Next week, we're going to talk more about the reality of Jesus experiencing suffering. But what we need to know, as one pastor says, is that Jesus knows the battle. He fought it all the way to the end, and he defeated the monster every time. He was really tested. He was really tempted. And so he doesn't, he doesn't roll his eyes at you when you're struggling. You're suffering or you're in pain. He doesn't shake his finger at you when you're tempted to sin or you're struggling to fight against it. No, our struggles and temptations and trials resonate with Jesus. Like a reverberating chord struck. They reverberate with him. Jesus was tempted and tried in every aspect of his personal life. He is like you, yet he did not sin like you and like me. No, in his very real humanity, when everyone else had abandoned him, he had walked in faithfulness to God. When everyone else had left him and walked their own way, Jesus suffered for you. He went to the cross, not for his sin, not for his disobedience, but for yours. Taking on your sin and your suffering as he suffered himself on the cross. He is a great high priest and a sympathetic sufferer. So this means something very practical for you and for me today. This leads to our last point. The author of Hebrews is saying this, Jesus is a great high priest and a sympathetic sufferer, so then confidently come to him for help. Jesus is a great high priest. He is a sympathetic sufferer. So because of that, confidently come to him for help. We see this in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Let me just read this again for us. It says, let us then In light of what I just said, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, this isn't a picture of a high priest of high religion that's stodgy and separated and stingy. No, this is a great high priest, a faithful high priest who understands and who can help you in your life right here and right now. This text tells us he's qualified to do this. He is alive and he is able. He is accessible and he is available. So go to him. Run to him. Cling to him. And do so confidently. The idea of confidence here is is the idea of boldness. That you can boldly come. It's the idea of freedom of expression and honesty and deliverance from fear. It's coming before holy God without hesitation or tentativeness. That's amazing. See, we can't can't skate over or underplay the radicalness of verse 16 here. He's saying, let us then come confidently before the throne. Do do you get it? Do, Do I get it that we shouldn't be able to do that? Our sin is heinous. It's rebellion against God. It asserts self-sufficiency and independence over the one who has made us and called us to follow him. Sin separates us from the very presence of God. What you deserve, what I deserve is condemnation. What you deserve and what I deserve is wrath from holy God for every wicked thought, every wicked action, every moment of apathy, every moment of indifference. Then you and I have an accuser our great enemy. 
God's word says that he stands before the throne day and night accusing you. Accusing you. He brings accusation upon accusation about you, against you, before God. Just as a quick aside, people who relentlessly accuse have more in common with Satan than they do our Savior. This accuser, he accuses you night and day. He knows that your sin deserves God's righteous wrath. He knows it. And here's the thing, he doesn't have to make anything up about you. There is plenty of material for him to draw off of about your life to come before God, to come before the throne, to bring against you. And so you stand exposed and accused and deserve judgment and death, but that is not what you get. That is not what you get. Do you see it? He doesn't say, he doesn't invite us to come confidently before the throne of judgment. He invites you to come confidently before a throne of grace. Grace. Why? Because the accuser is not the only one who stands before the throne. No, you have an advocate. An advocate. One who has passed through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And every time an accusation is made against you, Jesus declared, paid for in full by my blood. He's mine. She's mine. It's amazing. In those moments, the accuser is silenced. There's nothing else to say because Jesus has said it all. That's insane. That's earth shattering. That's revolutionary for your life. The fact that you can come before the throne and it's a throne of grace and receive mercy, forgiveness for your sin and receive grace to keep walking faithfully with Jesus to help you stay the course is amazing. You do not deserve it. I do not deserve it. And so if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if Jesus is your only hope, you can confidently come before holy God and draw near to him only because Jesus, your mediator, has paid for your sin and removed your shame, all of it. You can come confidently because you've received mercy and you find grace to help in time of need. And so now Jesus intercedes for you and Jesus invites you to come to him. Brothers and sisters, free favor is dispensed at the throne of grace. God is not stingy with it. He he doesn't give out grace in rations. Like he's not sure how much longer it's going to last or if you'll take too much of it. And so he just kind of gives you a little bit at a time. That's, That's not what he does. He lavishes grace on you. It's unrestricted. It's unending The only condition is being willing to receive it. So here's a question for us. If all that is true, why don't you and I do this? Why don't we confidently come before the throne daily, minute by minute? I think there's a twofold reason for this. We don't come confidently because we don't believe we actually need help. And we don't come confidently because we don't actually believe we will receive help. 
when someone's on a ventilator, they're needing help breathing. Something going on in their body, and so this machine is helping their body to do what it's supposed to do, to take in air, to inhale and exhale. But when we're healthy, we don't think much about breathing. We go outside, we take a breath of fresh air, and we go about our day. But what do you and I actually need to survive? We need oxygen. So whether our lungs are struggling or whether we're breathing just fine, we both need the same air to keep us alive. See, I think what happens so often in our lives is that we don't actually believe we need help. We're good. We're breathing just fine. When things are going well, we become self-confident. We forget that even then we are still in need of the grace of Jesus for life. We still need the same air to breathe. But then, when things do become challenging in our life, we can still become self-confident and rely on ourselves because that's where our confidence has been for so long. In our abilities to fix things, to make things right, to clean up the mess of our lives. Or, in those moments when things are challenging, we find ourselves putting our confidence in someone else or something else. When things are difficult, we believe, oh, if I just had a few more dollars in my bank account, then I'd be whole, then I'd be good, comfortable. If I could just be in relationship with this guy, then it'll make me whole, it'll make me comfortable, or this girl, if my marriage was this way, if I just had a kid, then all these things, these things would make me, my, my, my comfort would be secure in that. Once we put our confidence in other people, we don't believe we actually need Jesus' help. But we also don't actually believe we will receive help at times. So I think oftentimes we understand our sin, but we don't understand grace. We, we are timid and afraid. The idea of coming boldly before the throne is scary to us. Because we know what we did last night, or last week. And so we're reluctant to come. We're scared because we're not sure how God's going to receive us. And so what happens is we oftentimes listen to the voice of our accuser and forget the voice of our advocate. I do both of these things at times, and it paralyzes me from confidently coming to the throne of grace for help. So often I place confidence in myself or others. And I would say I especially do that when things are hard. Things are difficult. I'm trying to figure out the answer for something. I'm trying to overcome something. I can put my confidence in myself or what other people think. I'm not in my Savior. I can easily believe that I need to clean myself up before I come before the Father in prayer for help. That He's not going to listen to me. He's not going to welcome me. But friends, that's not the Gospel. See, Jesus doesn't invite you to come before Him after you've cleaned yourself up. As a line in a song that we'll sing after the sermon says, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. If you wait till you're better, you'll never come at all because the reality is, on your own, you are not able. You are not better. But the good news is that Jesus is able and that Jesus is better. And He has finished this work for you and He invites you to lay down your burdens. To lay down your shame, to cry out for help, to cry out for mercy and grace. And so Jesus invites you, even now, 
no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what you're going through or struggling with, whether it be sin or suffering, whether things are good or hard for you right now, in your work, in your mothering, in your fathering, in your friendships, in your dating, in your marriage, in your finances, in everything to confidently come to the throne of grace to help. Not just come, confidently come. Boldly come with no hesitation, no tentativeness to come before the Father and say, I need help. It's as simple as that, to come in prayer and simply and honestly say, Jesus, I need you today. Jesus, I need you right now. I don't know what to do. My kids are driving me crazy. This coworker of mine is so difficult to work with. I don't know how to be a husband. I don't know how to be a father. Jesus, I need you. I need your help today to be faithful. Listen, you are not trapped in your sin or your weaknesses. I'm left alone to figure it out. Do not believe that lie. You are weak. He tells us that. Jesus identifies with us in our weakness. But that's okay. Our world says weakness isn't good, but it's in the moment of weakness when we actually acknowledge that, that it shouldn't lead to despair. It shouldn't lead to shame. It's a humble acknowledgement of our reality, and that's the place that Jesus identifies with us in, in the moment of our weakness. You will not look for help. You will not run to the throne of grace if you are not willing to admit that you are weak and in need of help. And you have it. And you can have it right now if you will but receive it and trust in your high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Whether that's for the first time today or maybe the thousandth time in your life. Because from beginning to end, you still need him. So place your faith in him today. Because Jesus is our great high priest and sympathetic sufferer, you can confidently come to him and you can come and you confess your sin quickly and specifically knowing that he understands. So what keeps you from coming to him? What keeps you from confidently coming to him? Are are you putting your confidence in yourself or others? See, when you do that, that person or that thing becomes your savior. It becomes your hope. And when that happens, your Jesus becomes small. And when your Jesus is small, everything else in your life is bigger. But friends, our Jesus is not small. He is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has overcome the world. Though your sin is great, our Savior is greater still. See, one other thing I don't want us to miss in this, one other thing that the author points out in this, he says, because Jesus is a great high priest and a sympathetic sufferer, let us come confidently before the throne. Let us. This is a collective effort of the body of Christ, the family of God, the church. This is not a solo endeavor. We are in this together. We need each other. We really do. We need others to remind us of the help we have in Jesus. We need others to remind us that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. We need each other to remind us that 
Jesus will come again to bring us all the way home, and he is worthy of our life and our lifestyle. And at times, we have to carry one another to the throne of grace. Like the four friends with the paralytic, we have to tear open a roof and lower our friends to the feet of Jesus. And allow the great physician to do his heart healing, heart restoring work. To pray for them, to pray with them, to speak the gospel over them. To call them to believe that Jesus is better and that he's available and approachable and able. That he is firm yet gentle, loving and gracious. That our Jesus is full of grace and truth for our weary souls. And so we confidently come together. Let us with confidence draw near. There's a great picture of this in John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, Peter and some of the other disciples are out fishing. It was their trade. It was what their work was. And this is after Jesus Jesus has been crucified. He's risen again from the grave. And there's still a lot of confusion going on. And so Peter's out in the water fishing. And they notice that Jesus is on the shore. And John notes that they're they're about 100 yards off the shore, about a football field's length off the shore. And what does Peter do? He doesn't strain his eyes to think. He doesn't yell at Jesus. At this point in time, it says that he basically has no clothes on. He's just kind of hanging out, doing his work. And he throws something on real quick. And he just jumps in the water. And he starts swimming. It reminds me in Forrest Gump when Forrest is on the boat and he sees Lieutenant Dan and he just jumps off the boat. Just lets the thing keep going. Man, I want to go see that guy. And so he swims at breakneck speed to the shore. One writer says this, these biblical characters like Peter, however clean or crude their personal histories may have been, are not paralyzed by the past in their present response to Jesus. Tossing aside self-consciousness. Doing crazy things like jumping half naked off a boat. They ran and clung and jumped and raced to him. And then he says this, Peter denied Jesus and deserted Jesus, but he was not afraid of Jesus. So to close, let me ask you a question. Suppose you come to the realization that all of your life and all of your work and all of your ministry has been egocentric and self-focused. Maybe acknowledge the fact that last night you didn't honor Christ with the decisions you made. Maybe you got drunk this past week. Maybe you've dove into sexual immorality, looking at something on your phone or your computer, sexually explicit, or you've committed adultery, or that you've been angry or irritated with your kids or your spouse this week. That you've said things that are not honoring to Christ. That you've failed to be merciful and kind and loving to someone in your life or someone in need, what do you do? How do you respond? Would guilt and self-condemnation and self-hatred consume you? Or would you jump into the water and swim a hundred yards at breakneck speed to Jesus? Would you allow the darkness to overcome you? Or would you let Jesus be who he is? a Savior of boundless compassion and infinite patience, a lover of your soul who keeps no record of your wrongs. See, the author of Hebrews is sending you a message this morning to you who are caught or stuck in sin, to you who are suffering, to the church as a whole. We have a faithful and great high priest who invites you to confidently come to him Not when you've figured everything out. 
Not when you've met the standard, not when you've kept up appearances, but when you recognize that you are daily in great need of mercy and grace to help you. To help you to continue on the path of life and hope and peace now and forever. Sojourn, all you need is need. All you need is Jesus. He is faithful and He understands. So confidently come to Him today for help. We take communion every week as a church. And we do this to remind us that we are a people who need help. It's an opportunity for you to literally get out of your seat and move towards mercy and grace. And so as you eat the bread and drink the cup this morning, Jesus is ministering to you. Let him do that work in your heart this morning. He he is speaking to you. He is reminding you that you had no hope. That you were lost and alone in this world, but God poured out and pours out grace upon grace to you through Jesus. His body was broken. His blood was shed to free you from your sin and your shame. And so as you come forward this morning to eat and drink, you declare that you do need help. That you haven't figured it all out. So let us with confidence draw near. Come confidently to the table this morning. Come together to the table this morning. Jesus has done it. He is all you need. Eat, drink, and celebrate today, family. And for those of you that are not followers of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward because this is a declaration that we are desperate for Jesus. And so if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, if you don't, haven't come to that place of recognizing I'm, I'm lost apart from a mediator from a representative before God. I understand my sin. I'm just going to invite you just to hang out in your seat. And that same invitation is there for you to respond in faith to Jesus today. So cry out to him. Pray to him. Tell him you need him. Tell him you need help. And let somebody around you know so that we can journey with you in following Jesus. Learning what it looks like for you to trust in him, to know him and be known by him to be in this family together as we walk with him. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or the tables in the back. Hear the words spoken over you this morning of what Jesus has done for you. And then celebrate with joy, with loud singing, with clapping, with laughter, with whatever, just to say, oh my goodness, I can confidently come. Man, let's confidently come today. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you. We thank you that you have made a way. We thank you that we do not receive what we deserve, but instead we get grace. Grace upon grace, we get you. So Father, I pray that you would help us to be a church, to be a people who confidently come and receive, no matter what that we'd encourage one another, that we would carry one another to the throne of grace when necessary and remind one another each and every day that Jesus is better. Father, would you breathe new life and joy into dry and weary hearts this morning? Again, would you break down walls and strongholds? Would you get into the midst of our hearts and draw us closer to you? Holy Spirit, do a work. Now, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to respond to sing, to celebrate the fact that we are known by you, 
we can know you, we can be in relationship with you, then we can come to you. We love you, God. We're thankful for your love. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.